It's Wednesday, May 7th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool Share Advisor in Sydney, Australia, Mr. Scott Phillips. Good to see you, my friend. Chris, thank you. It's great to be with you. It is great to have you here once again. Great to have you in town. Foolapalooza. The Motley Fool's annual meeting is this week. Now, in years past, Foolapalooza has meant it's been a short week for market foolery. That's not the case this year. We're, we're pre-taping this, going to pre-tape something to run on Thursday as well. So for our dozens of listeners, don't worry. Just because we're off working hard at our two-day annual meeting does not mean we will deprive you of market foolery. Um, but you're in town for our annual meeting, but you're in the country first and foremost you were part of the massive crew that we sent out to Omaha, Nebraska, for the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting. You've been before. I have been to Berkshire before. It's a it's a fantastic opportunity. Uh, Philip Lewis is the reason I'm here, but there's no uh, there's no harm in ducking out to uh, Omaha, Nebraska, in America's wonderful Midwest, and getting an opportunity to sit at the feet of of the masters of Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. David Hanson and I talked uh, a lot about the annual meeting on Monday. I am curious, though, was there anything in particular that struck you, whether it was at the marathon Q&A session on Saturday or at the Markel meeting uh, on Sunday? It was a marathon session. And don't forget, you know, Warren Buffett's 83, Charlie Munger's 90. This is a, they, are, they are acting like men 30 years younger than they are. It's, it's amazing. I think the thing that was stuck out most was Buffett has for a long time said there'd be no dividend paid by Berkshire. Uh, there was a vote of shareholders of 96, 97% of, of Berkshire shareholders said, no, we don't want you to pay a dividend. You've done a great job for us though, thus far. Please keep doing it. But he spent a little bit of time, a little bit longer than usual, talking about the time when maybe there won't, there would be need to be a dividend paid. He talked a lot about we've got a lot of cash. Um, he said on CNBC uh, only yesterday, the day before, they've got forty-seven billion dollars of cash on the books. He wants to get minimum of twenty billion dollars. So this cash is piling up, and he, he talked for for quite a while about the fact that it's harder and harder to find opportunities, and at some point they're going to have to do something else with that cash. And while he's not saying he's going to pay a dividend yet, and certainly the vote was, you know, saying that the shareholders didn't want a dividend, I think. He's preparing some groundwork for the time. Maybe it's five years away, maybe it's seven or even ten years away. But the clearest signal is yet that the dividend probably is in Berkshire's future, uh, particularly if the shares are, are above fair value or a value that he's prepared to pay. I think it was just a, a bit of a, you know, just a, a slight way of saying to, to shareholders, hey, get ready, we will at some point have a dividend being paid. Is a special one-time dividend, is that a possibility? Because that seems, like, uh, first of all, I, I find it a little odd that that higher percentage of shareholders would say they don't want a dividend. Then again, with that all that cash on the balance sheet, at some point it becomes almost impolite to not put it to use. And and you, no one wants, nor does anyone expect, Warren Buffett is going to radically overpay for something. Yeah, I think that's right. Look, uh, Apple's had this problem. They've got just so much cash on the books. Maybe it's a one-time dividend. I think, look, it's not going to happen until Buffett absolutely gets to his last point and say, I can, I can literally find nothing, and this cash is too much of a drag on shareholder returns to retain. It's worth saying, too, by the way, if, if some of you dozens of listeners are thinking, well, of course the vote was high. Buffett voted his shares that way. Even without Warren Buffett shares, over 96% of shareholders voted for no dividends. So, you know, very, very keen to get, to get you know, keep Warren Buffett working. And while he's getting those returns, he's entitled for the cash. At the point in time, he can't do it. I don't think it'll be a special dividend. I think it's more likely to be a regular one because there is so much cash coming. But, you know, Berkshire has some amazingly profitable businesses. There is cash just flowing in and flowing in and flowing in. You could pay it once, but then you've got the same problem next year and the same problem the year after. And I think... If, if Warren Buffett or his successor get to the point of saying, I physically can't use this cash anymore, then we're going to see some sort of regular dividend because the flow of cash coming to, to Omaha, Nebraska is just phenomenal. And you know, it's, a, it's a tidal wave that Buffett so far has been good at spending. But you know, of that $47 billion, he's saying, well, look, I've got 
You know, 20 million I want to keep, but there's 27 to go. There's a whole lot of money still in, in marketable securities and Coke shares, Amex shares and other things. He could raise $100 billion probably, give or take, if he needed to buy something significant. So he's either going to have to find more and more, you know, bigger and bigger elephants to use his term, or he's going to have to start paying a dividend. I should mention, because when David and Hans, uh, David Hansen and I were talking on Monday, the results of the Berkshire Hathaway 5K race had not yet been posted, much to the consternation of Matt Kopenheffer. The results are finally in. I can now share. David Hansen came in 183rd overall. That's great. And Matt Kopenheffer, go back to last Thursday's market foolery. I did predict a top 10 finish. Matt Kopenheffer came in 10th. So, very happy with those results. You didn't run the race, did you? Not this year. I did See, it last year. I did uh, it last year. Yeah, but you were smart this year. You said, I'm going to get a little extra shut-eye. I, no, I, I was there. I actually turned up to the to the event and waved the guys off and did all that sort of stuff. We had uh, prepared for the Mark Earl meeting you mentioned earlier. Uh, Mark Earl often considered a, a baby Berkshire, and that was a, a good meeting as well. So a few of the guys did the race. A few of us got ready and did a little bit of riding and other things and, and got ready for the meeting. Let's move uh, closer to your neck of the woods. Uh, I want to talk about the market in Australia, but first... Is there a a Warren Buffett-like character in Australia? Is there someone who is seen not just as a businessman or woman with a track record of excellence, but also Buffett has certainly over the last five to ten years or so become this elder statesman in the U.S. for all things economic. I'm wondering if there's someone like that in Australia, and if so, who is it? Yeah, there's really not, Chris. There is a business that's a little bit like Berkshire Hathaway. It's a company called Sol Pattinson's, uh, and the same family have been running that business since it was listed on the share market in 1903 in Australia. So it's a, it's a conglomerate, it's an investment conglomerate. They're, they're long-term value investors. They've got multi-decade horizons. So as a company, Sol Pats is a little bit like Berkshire. There's really no one with that gravitas, with that, that outstanding track record of, of a multi-decade run of market thrashing returns, and with Buffett's wisdom and common sense, it's a, it's a rare mix. You don't find it often in business. There's, there's some great business people, don't get me wrong, but there's very few with the, the gravitas of, of Buffett because of a combination of that great business and investment performance and simply that wisdom and common sense where people say, you, you're telling it to me straight, you're giving it to me straight, you're not always necessarily trying to, what we would say in Australia, talk your book, I don't know if that's a, a common phrase here, but you know, you're not trying to just simply, simply say, well, it works for me or my company, this is what I want. You're actually prepared to call it as you see it and, and talk, talk straight. We were talking before we started taping. You were saying the last couple of years, the Australian market's done quite well. Uh, is it, it, it? How is Joe Mager taking it? Because as a, as a value investor, he must be ripping out what's left of his hair. Because if, if shares are, I mean, what were you saying? It was basically 20% per year the last couple of years. Um, is, is it because, uh, well, let me back up for a second. First, is there talk, as there is here in the U.S., certainly over the last few months, where people look back at 2013 and they say, gosh, market up 30%. There are some people who are beating the drum saying, we're in bubble territory. This is going to pop. We are, going to, we are going to have a crash. Is that kind of conversation taking place in Australia? It is amongst some people, Chris. There, are, there is plenty of money going into some of our high-yielding investments, our banks, our supermarkets that are doing pretty well, have done very, very well for quite a while. And there's a whole lot of people closing their eyes and just saying, it's worked in the past. I hope it keeps working. There's another group of people, including Uncle Joe, who are saying, look, these things are getting this thing's getting a bit expensive. You know, our banks, you take our largest bank, Commonwealth, compared to Wells Fargo here, it is much more expensive. It is much more highly levered. Um, it's much more exposed to what's in Australia. still a very, very hot housing market. We didn't have the housing correction or crash that you guys had as, as result of the 2008-09 collapse here. So we've got very expensive housing. We've got very highly leveraged banks. 
that stuff is, is it's getting to powder keg territory now. I don't know what's necessarily a bubble, but gee, if a few things go wrong, the housing sector could be in trouble, the banks are, could be in trouble. The thing about the Australian market too is the top five or ten companies make up about half of the market value, market cap of the index. So where the banks go, the rest of the market goes. That, by the way, is an opportunity for, for investors who are prepared to look further than that. If you can be uncorrelated with the index, particularly if it does suffer that fall, while the market might fall, you as an investor may still do reasonably well because if you're not in that banking sector, if, if that does suffer some sort of pullback, you may do well. And even if the index falls because of the, the sheer weighting of those companies, there's still opportunities. So we're finding the best opportunities outside those top five and ten businesses. Um, Uncle Joe's been busy finding finding some, some great business in Australia. They're, they're not in the banking sector, I'm, I'm sure he won't mind me saying. Uh, but it's a, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough market. The market valuations are getting reasonably high. We're seeing you know, high teen PEs for the banks. We're seeing uh, our major supermarket retailer, which is a wonderful business, but only growing at 5 or 6% a year, is on a PE of 20 at the moment. These are incredibly stretched valuations for the best, the best and biggest companies in the country just because that's where the money's flowing. People are piling into these businesses, and, and it really is creating valuation risk. I don't want to call it a bubble. I don't think that's necessarily right yet, but gee, when you invest, you want to invest with as little as possible risk for the best possible return. I think at the moment, some of the big caps in Australia are really showing the reverse. There's a little bit of return potential, but there's growing amounts of risk in those businesses. Here in the States, there is certainly a chunk of people who look at Wall Street. And maybe it's just an institutional thing. Maybe there will always be people who will look at any large institution, whether it is Washington, D.C. and the government, the financial institutions on Wall Street, the entertainment industry out in Hollywood and say, blanket statement, I don't trust them. I'm curious, though, what is the sentiment of the average Australian investor? First, does that same distrust exist or or is that not the case? I think we're having a real trouble with consumer confidence in Australia at the moment. It's largely because between the financial system and the political system, there has been so much so many shenanigans and chicanery going on that I think Australians don't know who to trust. We, you know, they don't know. The financial sector is much like the financial sector here. There is a lot of self-interest going on. There's a lot of fees being charged by a lot of people for some dubious advice. Um, by the way, that's why we as The Motley Fool exist. We're, we're here to, to, to bring some light into that sort of area, and hopefully we're doing a pretty good job both here and in Australia. But that's that's a tough area. We've had some political changes of government last uh, last year in September. Uh, that necessarily hasn't flowed its way through yet. Uh, lots of lots of political infight and lots of partisan commentary. It's very very hard to to really have a sense that the economy. I, I think it's a bright economy, by the way. I think I, I'm very bullish about the Australian economy. I think we've got a a bright future ahead of us. But it, you know, like like investors do a lot of the time, you know, outside outside the foolish walls, it's very easy to focus on the short term and really you know, overemphasize that that short term challenge. That's really what we've got in Australia. We've got a lot of people looking three six months down the track and saying. Well, there's going to be a tough budget coming up. There's going to be budget cuts. There's going to be probably tax increases. It's really taking, giving consumer confidence quite a hit in the in the short and medium term. As I said, I think the longer term is bright, but investors and just the general population are having a hard time seeing the you know they're missing the forest for the trees. I think that's the biggest challenge we've got. I should mention for anyone interested, uh, you can go to our Australian website, which is fool.com.au. That's fool.com.au. You can read. From uh, the writings of Scott Phillips, of Joe Maker, and others, the whole team there, uh, and it really is a, a wonderfully growing team that we've got in Australia. So thank you for all that you've done, uh, and Bruce Jackson under his leadership to really grow that. I want to talk about Share Advisor, which is the service, uh, the sort of the the equivalent. I guess it's fair to say the uh, equivalent of the stock advisor service that we have here in the U.S. 
A little different, though, in that Motley Fool Share Advisor set up so that there are two recommendations every month. One is on a on Australian company. One is a U.S. company. Uh, both doing quite well, by the way. Both uh, the combined returns are just uh, outpacing the market's average return by about two to one. So that's that's fantastic. But but where are you looking for value right now? Where are you looking for opportunities in the Australian market? Yeah, Chris, it's a, as I mentioned earlier, it's a really tough market. The biggest and, and best businesses are at expensive multiples. The cheapest businesses tend to be pretty low quality. We've had a mining investment slowdown. We've had a lot of mining services companies. They've really struggled. I know there's some great mining services businesses here in the US, but in Australia, the mining slowdown has really taken the wind out of those sales. Really, the, the opportunity for investors, and as probably always the case, is to look past some of the biggest and best names. We, you know, like like here in the US, that the phrase blue chip tends to stand for a lot of things. Unfortunately, it's misapplied by a lot of investors. Just because a company is big, just because it's well known, doesn't make it a great investment. I think that's a, a problem that people have right around the world. We're finding the best opportunities really in some of that the less followed stocks, some of the ones that people may have heard of but don't necessarily know a lot about, or the ones that you won't necessarily read on the front page of our version of the Wall Street Journal. These are businesses that really are. You know, they're good business, doing some good things. They're in the middle of their growth phase. They're not necessarily the, the absolute you know, newest and brightest, but nor are they the 50-, 60-, 70-year-old businesses that have really had their best days. That, you know, they're reasonable businesses. They're just not going to be the greatest businesses and, and you know, investments anymore. Um, so that's really the opportunity, that, that second-line area. I think, um, you know, again, foolish investing is, is international, which is wonderful. So the same tenets that drive us here in the States are the same ones that drive us in Australia. We're long-term investors. We're looking for great businesses available at reasonable prices, not necessarily cheap prices because, as Warren Buffett himself said, you know, you want to buy great business at reasonable prices. That's still a wonderful wonderful formula for success. So we're finding those sort of opportunities. A little bit in the consumer sector, a couple of beaten-down stocks. Um, we've, we've recommended on our U.S. scorecard, Berkshire Hathaway itself, so it's nice to nice to go to the, the meeting as a, not nice. as a shareholder, but as a, as a company we've recommended and really sit there on behalf of, of investors both here and, and in Australia. Those are the best areas. A little bit in the consumer space, I think the consumer confidence will return. The share prices really haven't to the same degree. So there's a couple of consumer businesses that are that are pretty good little businesses. I said they're not the best on not the biggest, but they're certainly one of the better. And again, available at a reasonable price. And that that mix of price and quality is a, is a conversation you have to keep having. At the moment, it's very very hard to find big businesses at cheap prices. So that middle middle end of the market is really where we're finding some opportunity. I'm glad you mentioned that about the phrase blue chip because one other thing about that phrase is I think there are some people who believe that the term blue chip is the investing equivalent of a college professor achieving tenure, that, it's, that it is a lifetime label, that once a stock is labeled a blue chip stock, well, they're always going to be a blue chip. And it's like, no, 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 no. That, that, that's at the moment, that's maybe over a given time period. But just because, you know, I don't want to single out any one particular company, but it is not a lifetime uh, label that they get to carry around forever. That's exactly right. There's a saying in IT, you never go broke buying IBM, or you never get fired buying IBM, I should say. And that's, it, it's a fallback, right? So if you're a stockbroker, if you're a financial planner, the easiest thing to do is to tell people to buy the blue chips. They're the names they know, they're the businesses have been around for 30, 40, 50, 60 years. They seem safe, they seem reliable. You recommend a whole group of those, no one's ever going to say, well, you did a bad job. And by the way, if your recommendations perform badly, People are still likely to give you a pass mark. They're likely to say, well, it was company A, B, or C. That's a good company. It's just having a bad trot. That's, that can be a really you know, really costly mistake for investors to make, is to assume that just because a stock is a so-called blue chip stock is going to do well, we've got uh, Qantas Airlines in Australia is considered a blue chip stock. And hopefully all of you just know about the tragedy that's been in the airline industry over the last 30 or 40 years. There are still makers in Australia with no cost advantages being absolutely taken to the cleaners by international competition, particularly out of Asia. 
it's just you know these are considered blue chip stocks and, and people think they should buy blue chips if you're a stockbroker if you're a financial planner it's easy to recommend someone say hey buy buy this blue chip it's a blue chip stock it's going to be okay it's almost that that tick of approval that saves investors and and by the way some professionals from even thinking more deeply about it and saying do I expect this company to have a great financial future? Do I expect it to beat the market over the next 5, 10, or 20 years? Often those aren't the question. The question is, well, if I give you a portfolio of companies you know, names that you trust, names that have been around for a while, that's enough. Um, you know, Our message at The Motley Fool, if nothing else, is that's not enough. Relying on, histor- relying on history, relying on reputation is not enough. You need to understand the business, understand the price you're paying, and more importantly, understand its future and what it can, what it can turn into. Um, both David and Tom Gardner have built long-term success with Stock Advisor, as you mentioned, by looking at the future of those businesses and looking for the growth runway, the people who are leading it, the, the future these businesses have got. Um, plenty of cases of history littered with mistakes that people made just by assuming that just because the past happened, the future is going to look the same. What is the reaction you get from people when you tell them not only what you do for a living, but where you do it? I am, I am curious about that. Uh, look, the Motley Fool is very well known here, Chris, in, in, in America and and. You and the team you know, have done a it's, great job. It's still not. I was I was talking uh, with one of our colleagues earlier today. It's still it. The Motley Fool is better known today than it has ever been, and yet it is still not well known. Just this past weekend, I was uh, out at, at a party. A friend of mine had a birthday party for his wife. Met this couple. Went through the usual, what do you do for a living, and got the blankest of stares when I told them what I do <laughs> and where I work. And then the woman of this couple said, wait a minute, it's a financial services company and it's called The Motley Fool? And I just had to nod and say, yes, it really is. And, anyway. Which, and Crystal, I'm sure, I'm sure your listeners know this very, very well. But for those who don't, The Motley Fool was the Shakespearean character who could tell, tell the king the truth without losing his head. And that's doing things differently, being able to tell the truth, not having to toe the, the party line or the bank line or the company line is exactly why The Motley Fool exists. So it's a wonderful name. To, to your original question, uh, the, the regular conversation I have almost weekly goes like this. I, I ring a company's reception and they say, uh, you know, <laughs> who, 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 where do you come from? I say, I'm Scott Phillips. I'm from The Motley Fool. And they ask me to repeat it, and I repeat it. And they say, how do you spell that? And I spell it. And they say, with an F. Yes, with an F. The Motley Fool. And what do you do? And so I explain that. We, we're providing you know, quality investment advice to retail investors. And they say, okay, and who do you want to speak to again? <laughs> And it gets to the point where I often have to refer either the receptionist or the investor relations person to our website to actually prove we are a real business. We do have a website. I normally link them through to our, to our company story on, on the US website just to prove that we are a business. We've been in business for 20 years and, and we're, we're a serious business. And, and luckily, our growing membership base in, in Australia means that fewer and fewer companies, are, particularly the investor relations or the, or the senior executive level, are having that problem. They do know who we are. They do understand what we're doing. Um, we've got some pretty good exposure through some of our uh, news outlets through through our major metropolitan newspapers through through TV outlets. We're getting we're getting a broader exposure over time. But yeah, the, the process. It, I almost have to allow an extra five minutes for any call because I know <laughs> just to get through the gatekeeper of the receptionist, then possibly the next you know the receptionist, then there might be the, the, the CEO's PA, and they've got to explain the story again. And, and normally it requires a call back while I go and check to make sure you know we're actually legitimate. We we are a real business. But um, look, it, it's a journey, and, and it's I wouldn't want to work anywhere else. It, it's a wonderful business. We're doing some. some some, hopefully some great things in terms of helping Australians and the rest of the world invest better. And I think if we can keep doing that, it's worth it's worth the pain of having to explain our funny name because at the end of the day, uh, we had a member event in Melbourne a few weeks ago and I got to sit there on my jester's cap and, and field questions from, from the audience. And it was just one of those wonderful experiences where you realise that you are having a real impact on, on real people. Not only, I mean, the investment returns are great, which is fantastic, but the, you know, we take education very seriously. We take yeah, that, that communication very seriously. Helping investors, look, we've had a great couple of years on the market. There will be another crash. It will come. And it might be three years away, five years away, six months.
months away, 10 years away, but at some point we'll have a slump. And at that point, if we've done our jobs well, not only will our members be better off financially, but they'll actually be able to weather that storm, ride out the storm and say, I knew this was coming. I expected it. I've learned from the Motley Fool. These things do happen from time to time. Despite that, in Australia over the last 30 years, $10,000 invested on the ASX to turn $280,000. Despite the 87 crash, despite the, the tech wreck, despite the Asian financial crisis, despite the GFC, you've still got a 28-fold return on your money. Just by, and that's just the index, by the way. So if you've beaten the index by a couple of points, you're probably looking at $400,000, $500,000 from $10,000 start 30 years ago. That's the message. That's the beauty of investing, of compound returns, of investing in quality businesses. But that's, that's our job, is to, is to help Australians and to help the world invest better. Yes, there actually is a website. It's fool.com.au. Uh, by all means, check it out. And check out ShareAdvisor if you're looking, uh, as we talk from time to time. We talk all the time about U.S. companies. But if you're looking for... Australian stock picks, then definitely check out ShareAdvisor. It's right there, information right there on the main page, fool.com.au. Scott Phillips, thanks for being here, man. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That does it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>